0: I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, The Comedies, Podcast A, The Taming of the Shrew. If we are to appreciate and be entertained by the taming of the shrew as Shakespeare intended, it is necessary to remember that the world as Shakespeare and his audience conceived it was hierarchical. Check out Series 1, Chapter 7, Podcasts 14 and 15 they are available. The hierarchy of all created things reached into every area of life, including family relations between husbands and wives. Wives were obliged and expected to obey their husbands in their just and reasonable instructions, and husbands were obliged and expected to care for their wives. That is the ideal and the norm that stands behind the justification for the taming of Catherine in this play. In our time, of course, while we can understand the psychological self-destructiveness of Catherine's behavior, we find it very difficult to approve of Petruchio's cure. We live in a society whose ideals and expectations tend toward the egalitarian. While many communities maintain the man of the house or the pants in the family expectations for men, Many other communities and most of our media entertainments suggest that men and women are obliged and expected to be equal in the marriage relationship, neither one compelling the submission of his or her marriage partner. At root, the relation between men and women in society and in nature constitutes a profound mystery, one in whose midst we all find ourselves, no matter who or what or when we are. There are various ways in which reasonable people can think about this mystery and about the best possible relation between spouses. Even the book of Genesis in the Bible presents two distinct versions of the creation of man. In one, man and woman are created together, implying an existential equality, chapter 1, verse 27. And in the other, woman is created out of the side or rib of man implying an existential hierarchy, chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. From our own experience, too, we may conclude that, apart from individual differences, in general men are better than women at some things, and women better than men at other things, and that therefore, in matters involving the former, wives ought to comply with their husbands, and in matters involving the latter, husbands ought to comply with their wives. This would presumably involve both a kind of equality and, at the same time, a variable kind of hierarchy. This being the case, we may have something to learn about our own psychology from Shakespeare's depiction of the healing of a problematic relationship between a man and a woman, even if the external social conditions of that relationship are no longer acceptable to us. Unfortunately, To appreciate the meaning of this play, we must also overcome a pre existing prejudice of such large influence that doing so may not be possible. The reason is the influence of leftism on modern feminism and of modern feminism on our imaginations. It would be difficult to find many communities in the Western democracies that did not approve of the modern achievement of equal rights for women under the law, the right to vote to own property, to sue for divorce. And hardly anyone would object these days that where women and men do the same work for the same hours, they should be paid the same wage. But having helped to achieve these goals of our egalitarian society, the feminist movement then came under the influence of Marxist thought, and in particular, the so-called Frankfurt School of Marxism. Marx's idea had been that all of history was the record of the oppression of poor by rich, or workers by owners of property. The Frankfurt School converted the idea of history into a record of the oppression of everyone else by straight white males. The supposed oppression of women by men has come to be known by the term patriarchy, used always in this context as a pejorative. And this idea, that history is largely a record of the oppression of women by men, has been so promulgated by the educational institutions and the entertainment and news media of our time that it has become almost impossible for anyone reading The Taming of the Shrew to see Petruchio as anything but an instance of the oppressive millennia-old patriarchy. See Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, for some salutary correction of this image of history. On page 304, Peterson writes, It looks to me like the so-called oppression of the patriarchy was instead an imperfect collective attempt by men and women stretching over millennia to free each other from privation, disease, and drudgery. As a result of this cultural influence, modern performances of The Taming of the Shrew often undermine the text. Petruchio is depicted coming onto the stage in Act 3, Scene 2, cracking a whip. And Catherine is shown at the end giving a nudge and wink to the audience, as if her great final speech were merely the political posturing of a woman who, far from obedient, is going to govern her man through secret wiles instead of openly defying him. Well, men have been known to whip women, and women have been known to govern men through secret wiles. Shakespeare has depicted a few of them. The problem is that there is absolutely no evidence in the play for such behavior in Petruchio and Catherine, or for an ironic ending. And injecting these attitudes into modern productions undermines the play's healing theme and joyful conclusion. So let us see whether we can get at what Shakespeare means us to comprehend and enjoy about this play. Doing so does not mean that we will be promoting Petruccio's methods in the real world. The play is a comedy and a kind of joke, though it reveals something very true about human relations and human happiness. It need not be taken as a prescription for action. In fact, Petruccio's actions are a witty humanization of the story in an old ballad that stands behind the plot. In a merry jest of a shrewd and cursed wife lapped in Morrill's skin for her good behavior, a husband beats his would-be domineering wife with a birch rod, then kills an old plow horse named Morrill, flays it, salts its skin, and wraps his wife in it until she submits. Shakespeare knew that ballad and knew it for a joke. In adapting its idea of taming for the stage, he utterly transposed the meaning of the story. Catherine is young, beautiful, and rich. But she has fallen into the habit of outraging her father, her younger sister, and her suitors by her choleric temper. She flies into rages to get her way. Check out Series 1, Chapter 7, podcast 15 when it is available for a discussion of Collar, spelled C-H-O-L-E-R, as one of the four humors. Catherine is furious that her younger sister Bianca has suitors and she does not. This envy and rage cause her to drive away all potential suitors and thereby confirm her in her misery. Petruccio hears of Catherine and for very good reasons decides to marry her. His father and hers have known one another well, and she is young, rich, and beautiful. In other words, given the world of comedy that they inhabit, they are a perfect match. But how is Petruchio to turn Catherine away from her shrewishness toward being an appropriate wife for him? He will woo her with some spirit. He says in Act Two, Scene One, lines one sixty-nine to one seventy-three. Say that she rail. Why then, I'll tell her plain she sings as sweetly as a nightingale. Say that she frown. I'll say she looks as clear as morning roses newly washed with dew. And later, creating havoc around her in his own home, he tells us in Act 4, Scene 1, Lines 203-209, to I, and amid this Hurley, I intend that all is done in reverent care of her. This is a way to kill a wife with kindness, and thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humor. He will cure her by creating around her the very havoc that she has been creating around herself. But instead of claiming to do so to satisfy his own will, as she is claiming to serve her own will in creating conflict, Petruchio will claim to be doing it for her sake, and in fact it is for her sake because only by having her humor curbed can she come to know peace and happiness in herself and consequently with a husband. The word kindness is weighted. This is a way to kill a wife with kindness. Petruchio is obviously acting toward Kate extremely unkindly on the surface, preventing her from eating and sleeping. But in the long run, his intention is indeed kind, meaning both compassionate compassionate and natural, for he is making possible their harmonious marriage. Of course, when Catherine finally shows that she is submitting to Petruchio by calling the sun the moon, and an old man a young girl, in Act 4, Scene 5, she knows, and Petruchio knows, and we know, that she is not really thinking that the sun is the moon. The whole episode is comically symbolic of the submission of the will to a rightful authority in the name of peace and quiet and harmony and normality. Out of that submission arises the great voice of wisdom in Catherine's final monologue in Act 5, Scene 2, beginning at line 136. It is directed at the other wives who, despite their pretense of obedience, are in fact as willful as she has been, but without the energy and fire to reveal it. Precisely the energy and fire that Petruchio loves in Catherine once it is brought into the service of the good, both his and hers. Catherine says, Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. Then we see an explicit example of the principle of correspondence visible throughout Shakespeare's works the principle according to which every microcosm is analogous to the macrocosm and to other microcosms. When it is available, check out Series 1, Chapter 7, Podcast 16 for a discussion of the principle. Catherine says, Such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. The family is a kind of city or state, and the husband in the well-run city or state of the home must be obeyed if there is to be peace and harmony, if there is to be even eating and sleeping. This is Catherine's argument at the end, enforced by the simple fact that men are stronger than women. This means that a husband can enforce his will by sheer power if necessary. But that is not the whole story. Despite what the anti-patriarchal polemicists would claim, The husband also is, according to Catherine, one that cares for thee and for thy maintenance, commits his body to painful labor, both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, whilst thou liest warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, and true obedience, too little payment for so great a debt. In other words, there is a kind of reciprocity here despite the hierarchical relationship. The hierarchy of things as imagined by Shakespeare and his audience had love moving both upward and downward, care and obedience in one direction and care and maintenance in the other. The conclusion of the speech is Catherine's offering to place her hand below her husband's foot in symbolic submission of her will to his. What Shakespeare then does is not to have Petruchio step on her hand and say, now that's the way I like it, power to the patriarchy. No, Petruchio's response to Kate's symbolic offer of true submission is, why, there's a wench, come on and kiss me, Kate. It's Act 5, Scene 2, line 180. In other words, in place of the gesture of dominance, husband stepping on wife's hand, Petruccio embraces her in a kiss, the incarnation and dramatization of their harmony, communion, even equality, as lovers, and therefore of joy. Shakespeare has begun his play with an induction, a leading in, which we would call an introduction, a leading into. His induction is not just a speech, but two dramatic scenes based on another comical old story, A lord tricks a drunken beggar by bringing him asleep into his palace, where the beggar wakes up to find himself surrounded by wealth and servants who treat him like a prince. When Shakespeare's beggar, named Christopher Sly, wakes up to be treated as a lord, actors appear in his supposed mansion to perform a play for his entertainment, and the play they perform is The Taming of the Shrew so that Shakespeare has given us the main play within the context of a small frame play. Why did he choose to include the frame story? One answer is practical. The initial situation of Christopher Sly is familiar to Shakespeare's audience, a sort of local color. The frame story easily engages the empathy of the audience, providing an effective transition to the story within the story. Another answer is thematic. The question of the play is to what degree people's behavior may be altered by an alteration in the way they are treated. Just as Sly begins to think of himself as a lord when he wakes up to find he is being treated as one, so Catherine learns to think of herself as virtuous, patient, obedient, rational, and loving, when all the chaos for which she has been responsible is reflected back at her under the guise of care and protection and kindness for her. The taming of Kate is a deeper transformation than that of Sly and it is undertaken for far more serious reasons. But both stories illustrate the truth that our image of ourselves depends in large part on the role we are expected to play in the world. Sly's transformation is a joke and a fake. Kate's is serious and real, though comical but Shakespeare cuts short the frame play after Act One, Scene One, and The Taming of the Shrew ends with no further mention of Christopher Sly. Why is that? There is another play, similar to The Taming of the Shrew, performed about five years earlier and published at about the same time as this play. It was called The Taming of a Shrew. Scholars debate whether it is a source for the Shrew or a bad quarto, that is, a memorial reconstruction of it, or a version of an earlier play that was the source for both. The subplot of A Shrew somewhat differs from that of The Shrew, and most of the characters' names are different. It is far inferior to Shakespeare's The Shrew, whatever its origin. However, apart from its interest to textual scholars, it is interesting in that in it, Unlike in Shakespeare's The Shrew, the Christopher Sly frame story is completed at the end. There, Sly falls asleep drunk in his supposed palace, and the lord who brought him in to trick him now has him returned to the street where he was found. When Sly awakes, he believes he has had the best dream that ever I had in my life, and then goes home to tame his wife as he has learned to do from the play performed for him in the supposed dream why does shakespeare choose not to complete the frame story about christopher sly the last scene of shakespeare's frame story which is interposed at the end of act 1 scene 1 gives us a hint in this scene the page boy is disguised as sly's supposed wife first servant says my lord you nod meaning doze off You do not mind the play. Sly. Yes, by St. Anne do I. A good matter, surely. Comes there any more of it? Page. My lord, tis but begun. Sly. Tis a very excellent piece of work, madam lady. Would t'were done. Sly clearly is bored by the first scene of the taming of the shrew, which is being performed for his entertainment and he cannot wait for it to be over though it has just begun. This is a subtle indication that no matter how convincingly he might be treated as a lord, he is not a lord in fact. The proof is that he cannot appreciate the quality or significance of the play that we, who are more sophisticated, are finding perfectly fit for our entertainment. The leopard will not change his spots, And Sly will remain the poor beggar in himself, no matter how much those around him pretend that he is a lord, and no matter how much he comes to believe it himself. By contrast, the joke played on Catherine in the taming of the shrew play that Sly is watching, instead of making her think she is something she is not, in fact causes her to discover who she really is. And that discovery is so much more important than the waking of Sly from his supposed dream, that we can imagine Shakespeare deciding to abandon the relatively shallow frame story for the sake of retaining the full force of the conclusion of the more profound story. In short, The Taming of the Shrew is not about fooling someone into believing she is what she isn't, but about cajoling someone into realizing and embracing what she, at her best, truly is. Now let me explain a few of the key lines in the play. 1. In the stage direction at Act 2, Scene 1, Line 22, Catherine strikes her sister, Bianca. In doing so, Kate gives an important sign of her unregenerate spirit. Her shrewishness is expressed not merely in words, but in violent deeds. It cries out for taming. 2. At Act 3, Scene 2, lines 117 to 120, Petruchio says, To me she's married, not unto my clothes. Could I repair what she will wear in me, as I can change these poor accoutrements, twere well for Kate, and better for myself. Wear here means wear out as clothing is worn out. But Kate will be wearing out two kinds of things in Petruchio. A. His practical support and gifts of kindness, and B. His character as a caring and loving husband. If he can keep renewing his practical gifts to her, and if he can keep renewing his character as a patient and loving husband, no matter how much Kate abuses it, the fruits will be good for both of them. 3. At Act 4, Scene 1, line 180, Petruccio's servant Peter says he kills her in her own humor. Her own humor is choler, that is, the predisposition to excessive and violent rages. Again, check out the humors in Series 1, Chapter 7, Podcast 15, when they become available. Petruchio is using his own apparent collar to subdue Catherine's. But this line is connected with Petruchio's next speech, in which he says, This is a way to kill a wife with kindness. Not the usual meaning of that phrase. He is killing in her the collar that would make a happy life with her, and for her, impossible. And thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humor, he says. Once again, the goal is not power, but peace. Now here are a few specific notes to help you in your reading. 1. A shrew is a small, nocturnal, long-nosed, mole-like insectivore that was believed to be venomous and therefore malicious and dangerous. The term came to be used of a vexatious, scolding, brawling woman. Shakespeare's word shrewd is an adjective from shrew. We would say shrewish. 2. The name Petruccio is spelled P-E-T-R-U-C-H-I-O by Shakespeare in order to be pronounced as the Italian name Petruccio, P-E-T-R-U-C-C-I-O. That is Petruccio. Those performers who persist in pronouncing it Petruchio to show off their knowledge of Italian, in which the C-H is pronounced like a K, fail to realize that Shakespeare was a step ahead of them. He knew his English actors would pronounce the Italian spelling C-C-I-O with a K sound in error and wanted them to get it right, so he spelled it and expected us to pronounce it with the C-H as in English. 3. In the first scene of the induction, at lines 67-68, to the Lord says about the plan to trick Christopher Sly that it will be pastime passing, meaning surpassingly, excellent, if it be husbanded with modesty. Note the use of the words husbanded and modesty, which prefigure the theme of the main drama. To husband means to take care of, to govern well, to preserve. Modesty means moderation, freedom from excess, self-control. We will, unlike Christopher Sly, enjoy the play we are about to see, and Petruchio will husband Kate with what appears at first to be madness, but is finally revealed to be a deeper and truer modesty, and one which he teaches to Kate. 4. In Act 1, scene 1, lines 31 to 33, Tronio says, Let's be no Stoics nor no stocks, I pray, or so devote to Aristotle's checks, as Ovid be an outcast quite abjured. A stock is a piece of wood, hence someone insensible. Aristotle, as the author of the Nicomachean Ethics, stands for morality. Ovid, as the author of Ars Amatoria, The Art of Love, stands for love. 5. In Act 3, Scene 2, Lines 228-239, to 239, when Petruchio is about to carry Kate off from the wedding, he says, Nay, look not big, nor stamp, nor stare, nor fret. He is speaking about what Kate is doing, which is trying to have her own way but he is speaking to the gathered wedding guests, pretending that they are threatening Kate and his right to possess her. He fancifully proclaims that he is protecting her from them in order to teach her what he would do if ever she were threatened, in fact. Fear not, sweet wench, they shall not touch thee, Kate. In short, he is enacting a drama of his commitment to be her protector, though she is the only real threat to their happy marriage. 6. At Act 4, Scene 5, Line 76, the word jealous means suspicious. 7. At Act 5, Scene 2, Line 109, the word awful, A-W-E-F-U-L, means commanding respect and obedience. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.